Greetings, brethren, and welcome to God's Day of Atonement. Everybody feeling good, feeling healthy, feeling, uh, uh, feeling hungry, I'm sure. Uh, as you know, we tape these uh, sometime before the actual day in, some, uh, in most circumstances to get these sermons to our congregations everywhere. So somewhere out there, I know that I'm actually sitting out there with my children, and I'm sure that they are reminding me that the Day of Atonement is their favorite day, their favorite holy day. Yay! No eating and no food and no water. Uh, hopefully we don't always think that way. Hopefully we actually do take the time to ponder the meaning of God's holy days. Because one thing I can say for my children, even though it's not a lot of fun uh, to go without food and to go without water, at the same time, anytime we talk about the meaning of this day, uh, my boys are generally pretty consistent. It's an exciting day when we understand what this day really does stand for. And I, I don't know about you, I remember when I was being called into God's church and beginning a relationship with Jesus Christ and learning the truth uh, one of the booklets that captured me uh, more than any other booklet, I think, especially at the beginning, uh, was the booklet about uh, pagan holidays or God's holy days, which it was just fascinating to go through and take a look at these days. These days are actually in the Bible, not days like the world has made up, uh, things just popping out of the mind of man here and there, but actually days in God's word uh, and that had meaning, real meaning, meaning that I'd never really heard taught any place else. Uh, I don't know what you experienced in that sense and, and, and your calling, but I know for me, that was powerful. And of all the days that really stood out as something that I thought, where in the world did that come from? It was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement has a fascinating picture uh, that it's vital for us to understand. And especially as the church is growing and we're having more and more new people all the time, we want to make sure we really do understand this day, understand what the Day of Atonement pictures and why in the world uh, we're going hungry today. And so that's going to be our goal basically today in this sermon. We want to briefly review what the Day of Atonement is about, uh, some of the ceremonies that went on in this day anciently, but more importantly, what those days mean, or rather what those uh, symbols mean, what the Day of Atonement is really teaching us in Scripture through the symbols that are used. And then we'll also take a look at some of the things that we can learn by meditating on this day, some of the lessons that God provides. Because again, God's holy days are just chock full of real meat, things that He wants us to review on a year-by-year -year basis, something we should be reflecting on and meditating on. And let's face it, you're not eating today, so you've got extra time to meditate and extra time to think. So let's take a look. Open in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23. And anytime we're going to take a look at the Holy Days, Leviticus 23 is usually a great place to start. In Leviticus 23, we read specifically about the Day of Atonement, starting in verse 26. In Leviticus 23, starting in verse 26, we read, And the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. You shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the eternal your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening 
from evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Well, there's an introduction to the Day of Atonement, and it gives us some of the basics. Uh, we learned that it's supposed to be a day of rest. It's a day that we're resting from our normal work. And face it, we're also fasting. Actually, we wouldn't have the strength to do a lot of our normal work anyway, would we? We're fasting to God. And we can read throughout the Bible that afflicting your soul really does mean to fast. It means to go without food and to go without water. Now, what are we doing in that? As we fast, we're seeking to draw close to God. Uh, when you're fasting, you're basically saying to God that I understand that you are my sustenance. I understand that though if I don't take another bite to eat, if I don't get another uh, something to drink, eventually I'm going to die. But God, I understand that you are more important to me than that. You are more important to me than food and drink. And we take a day aside when we fast to show God that we recognize that, that he has priority over everything in our life, including the fundamentals, including food and water. So on the Day of Atonement, we fast. We use this time to draw closer to God, and it is a day of rest. There's also the word, uh, the word atonement, which actually, when you break it down, means at one meant. The Day of Atonement, which we will see, pictures a time when, for the first time, uh, humanity is going to be able to begin a real relationship with God, as we learn when a major difference is made in the world, something that changes everything. And the beginning of a real relationship with God becomes possible for so many people where it never has been before. Uh, the Day of Atonement is a fantastic day. It's covered also in Leviticus chapter 16. If you take a look at Leviticus chapter 16, just a, a few chapters earlier... Leviticus 16, we have some details uh, discussing what goes on on the Day of Atonement, at least of what went on anciently. And you've got to admit, when you read it, it makes atonement sound like the weirdest day. At least it does to me. It's like no one ever did any of these things on any other day. It's just atonement. It stands out with this odd ceremony. And I remember before coming into the church, reading about these things and opening my Bible and looking at Leviticus 16 and thinking, what in the world is going on on the Day of Atonement? And so let's take a look at Leviticus chapter 16, where we see some details. Now, it doesn't say at the very beginning of Leviticus 16 that this is the Day of Atonement. But if you take a look at the end of the chapter, if you take a look at verses 29 through 34, it makes it very clear that this is discussing the Day of Atonement and what is done on the Day of Atonement. So let's start in verse 2 of Leviticus chapter 16. We read, the Eternal said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. And we actually read further, we could read the next few verses, where it talks about spe special preparations done for Aaron. This is a unique day in the annual cycle of Israel's worship where the high priest Aaron is actually able to go in to the Holy of Holies. It was an incredible day. It was the single day, any other day that he would step foot in that room, he would die on the spot. But on this one day, he's actually allowed to go into the very holiest side in all the land of Israel uh, before uh, the Lord Eternal there at the mercy seat. So there's a lot of preparation for this day. Uh, let's skip to verse 7. In verse 7 we read, He shall take two goats and present them before the Eternal at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Eternal and the other lot for the scapegoat. Now, scapegoat is the word that we've used in English 
uh, as we will see, to stand for the goat that escapes, the goat that it seems somehow gets to get away. Uh, that is an unfortunate translation. That is not what this word means. The word in Hebrew is azazel uh, instead of scapegoat. And it's an odd word. The word, the meaning of the word, some say has been lost to history. Uh, there's a lot of tales uh, about what the word might mean. In fact, if you look at some of the cultures in the Middle East, actually that name is associated with a demon, uh, considered to be the demon that lives out in the wilderness. It's associated with evil things, things that absolutely aren't good. Uh, regardless of what the word means, God doesn't require us to be Hebrew scholars to understand his word. We don't all have to go get a degree in Hebrew or a degree in Greek to make sense of the word that he's given us. It's very clear that if one goat is for the eternal, well, then the other goat is not. So regardless of what that word means, what we understand is that there is one of these two goats that is set aside for the eternal, which implies that the other goat isn't. Well, what is going on with these two goats? Let's continue to read here in verse 8. Again, then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one for the eternal and the other lot for the Azazel, the scapegoat, the goat that is not for the eternal. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the eternal's lot fell. So here's the goat that as they cast lots, uh, the lot said this goat was the one for the eternal. And they offered that goat as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the eternal to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. Now we can continue reading the next few verses. It talks about what is done uh, with the blood of the first goat, the goat that was offered as a sin offering, the goat that was set aside by the lots uh, to be uh, for the eternal let's get some details of what happens with the other goat. Uh, first, actually in 15, sorry, let's discuss that goat. It says in verse 15, on the goat that the Lot decided this was uh, for the eternal, that God showed through the use of Lot, that this was a goat set aside for the eternal. We read in verse 15, that Aaron shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull earlier and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before uh, the mercy seat. So he's making atonement uh, with the blood of this goat. This goat that was set aside for the eternal is killed as a sin offering, and its blood is used to make atonement. Then there's this other goat, this weird other goat. What's going on with that goat? We can actually read a little bit later, beginning here in verse 20. Then when Aaron has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar... He shall bring the live goat. Here's the other goat. This is not the goat that was for the eternal. This is not the goat that was meant to be a sin offering. This is the other goat. We'll take a look in verse 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. And then we can continue in the verse. It talks about more cleansing being done, including the man who took the goat out in the wilderness. What an interesting ceremony. I mean, how odd and how unique uh, in terms of the ceremonies that God gave 
to ancient Israel, we do have a goat that, as you might expect in most sacrificial cases, the goat actually is for the eternal, where the priest casts lots, and one lot says, this goat is for the eternal, this goat is not, this goat is something else. And so the goat that is set aside for the eternal is sacrificed as a sin offering. And then the other goat is actually taken by the hand of a suitable man, it says specifically, taken by the hand into a wilderness, away from the congregation of Israel, away from the people, and is set free there after, or at least set loose there, I should say, after the priest, the high priest, has laid his hands on the goat's head and pronounced all the sins of Israel on the head of that goat and placed those sins directly on that goat's head. What a unique ceremony uh, that God gave the children of Israel. But as we read, Paul says these things weren't necessarily recorded so much for them. They were recorded for us. And so the question comes to us, what does this day mean? What is God trying to tell us in this ceremony with the two goats? Well, where does today fall? Today's atonement. And so most likely a few days ago, you were keeping the Feast of Trumpets. And most likely a few days from now, you're going to be headed for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, most likely you've already reviewed what does the Feast of Trumpets really picture? The Feast of Trumpets pictures that glorious return of Jesus Christ, those trumpets leading up to the return of Jesus Christ, the plagues and the, the drama that's going to take place on earth as God breaks the will of a hardened earth and hardened hearts inside mankind. And then Jesus Christ returns in glory and power and all of those who are his will be raised up in the first resurrection and become his children, his children full of power and might, ready to begin their rule on this earth. And that was at the Feast of Trumpets. And most of you know that the Feast of Tabernacles pictures that beautiful millennial reign of Jesus Christ. When the family of God is ruling on the earth, when they're taking care of business, so to speak, and the earth is enjoying all the benefits of having God himself, the person of Jesus Christ on the earth, ruling and running the show through those that have become a part of that family. So that's trumpets and that's tabernacles. Atonement lies between. Is there any particular event that is coming in the future that happens between the return of Jesus Christ after that and before uh, the glorious time pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles? Absolutely, there is. And we find the parallel between that event and then what we just read in Leviticus is truly phenomenal. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. And let's take a look at this. Revelation chapter 20. And first, where are we? Again, remember the sermons that most likely you heard uh, coming the Feast of Trumpets. We've had the plagues. We've had uh, the bowls. We've had these horrible and awesome things happening on the face of the earth to break the will uh, of a stubborn mankind and to set the stage for the return of Jesus Christ. And at that last trump, uh, we have had the kingdom declared. We have the saints raised in glory and power. So that's what is just finished. And what do we read in Revelation chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 1? <coughs> Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, excuse me, <coughs> having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Bound Satan the devil 
for a thousand years. That being that has just wreaked havoc on the earth, uh, running around virtually at will, deceiving the nations of mankind, uh, has been bound and is going to be taken away, away uh, from the rest of the earth for a thousand years. And it says, he cast him, this is verse 3, he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should not uh, deceive, sorry, he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And then we can continue in verse 4. We actually see thrones uh, being given to the saints and judgment being committed to them and the beginning of the rule of God, of Jesus Christ on this earth for a thousand years beginning. But it begins with this very pivotal moment. Take a look at the, con- not the contrast, but compare uh, Leviticus and the events we see in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, we have a goat that is not uh, the eternal, that is not symbolic of Jesus Christ. We have a goat that is something else. And we have that goat, we have uh, sins being pronounced on the head of that goat and that goat being taken away from the congregation. Uh, So it is no longer, in a sense, uh, a part of Israel, but it's taken away at some distance off into an uninhabited wilderness. And then here, at the moment that this day should picture uh, in prophecy and in terms of God's plan and what's coming, we have a very remarkably parallel event where we have a suitable man, if you will. We have an angel from God coming and taking Satan, the devil, who has had a role in all of our sins, as we'll discuss in just a little bit, who has had a role in deceiving mankind, who has been a part of broadcasting his attitude uh, over all the face of the earth, who has had a role uh, and taking him away from the rest of the world uh, at that time. What an amazing parallel this was. And I remember the very first time that I read that, it just stood out at me. It was, uh, it was remarkable. You know, it's something to understand, by the way, that just because Satan has a role doesn't mean the nations are innocent. doesn't mean that we are innocent whenever we do sin. Uh, but at the same time, that is an important lesson uh, here in the Day of Atonement. Uh, the devil is responsible in some way for our sins. And God is just. God does hold people accountable. It doesn't mean the nations are innocent. Again, it doesn't mean that we are innocent. Uh, an analogy would be this. If, if a, a woman dresses too provocatively, uh, purposefully, perhaps trying to um, incite lust, uh, wherever it is that she's going, some function, some event, something like that. could be the prom, I don't know. And young men that may look upon her do just that. They see and it's like... Wow, you know, they go the the whole cartoon route, their eyes bug out, their tongue drops down, whatever the case may be. If those young men, say young men, uh, old men applies to you too, Uh, I guess I should say we too. I'll let you decide where I fit in that that spectrum of ages. Uh, But in terms of men that do entertain lust in their minds, that's their sin. They are accountable for the choices they make uh, with their own minds. And yet God is just. God considers the entire picture and someone who has made a choice like that, that causes, that influences, that helps someone else to stumble, God takes very seriously. Let's actually take a look in Mark chapter 13. In Mark chapter 13, we read something that should really jump out at us and should cause us to consider Uh, the choices that we make, when those choices may impact other people. In Mark chapter, oh, I'm sorry, actually Mark chapter 9. 
in Mark chapter 9 and verse 42. Mark 9 and verse 42. Jesus Christ warns that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That is a grievous warning. Uh, when we put stumbling blocks in front of our brother or in front of our sister, if someone stumbles, they are accountable for that. If someone sins, that's their choice. They're accountable for that. And yet, if we have had a role in that, if somehow uh, through our own poor choice, we have influenced and made it that much easier for someone to stumble, God says through Jesus Christ that there will be an accountability there. We will be held to account for that. The day of atonement is perhaps the ultimate fulfillment of that, where mankind does suffer the effects of his own sin. Mankind suffers death. Mankind suffers the horrible penalties of sin. And yet God is just and God is not just going to allow Satan to get off scot free. Rather, there will be an accountability. There will be an accounting for Satan. And the Day of Atonement pictures that for the role that he has played in deceiving mankind, for the role that he has played in in twisting the truth in creating a counterfeit Christianity in terms of just distorting the beautiful, fantastic truth of God and deceiving mankind in that way. Satan absolutely will be held accountable. And that is the fantastic uh, picture that this holy day gives us of the future. Uh, is one thing that my children talk about. They say, Satan's going to be taken away one day, Dad. And I say, he is. Absolutely he is. And we're not going to have to worry about him for a thousand years. I hope that we appreciate that knowledge. The knowledge of what this day really does picture. The knowledge that helps us to understand that all this stuff in Revelation is not just symbols. It's history written in advance. Do we really appreciate that? You know, sometimes... Time goes on and people get tired of hearing the same old thing. They think, oh, I just want to hear something new. I'm so tired of the same messages over and over. I'm so tired. Isn't there some new thing? And you see them start to scratch their ear. Why? Because they have itching ears and they're starting to look for someone that can give them kind of a new bit of morsel, some new understanding. And, you know, new stuff can be exciting. And yet at the same time, God has put in place a series of seven holy days that we review every year because he wants us to understand these things. He wants us to appreciate these things. And I hope that we do. The Day of Atonement can be a difficult day. I'm not pretending that it's not. But at the same time, the value in this day and the lesson, uh, hopefully we're appreciating that lesson. You know, the Feast of Tabernacles cannot begin until the Day of Atonement is over. And the millennium of God, that rule of the kingdom of God on this earth cannot take place until Satan is removed. And I hope that we appreciate that. Uh, what I'd like to do for the rest of the sermon is talk about some lessons that we can learn just by meditating on some of these things. I hope that you'll come up with your own. You know, one of the most beneficial things that I have ever done in relation to the holy days and I remember having actually uh, the old booklet about uh, pagan holidays or God's holidays, which in mind when I started this was every year to write down some lesson in, in one location that I learned from that particular holy day. God intends his holy days to be instructive. 
the days of unleavened bread have never been the same for me since I started doing that. And every year you're getting leaven out of your home and you learn one more little nugget of truth. You learn one little thing that impresses you, that it just sinks in that didn't sink in before. And so write that down. It's a it, it really has helped me. And sometimes I'll think, oh, that's a fantastic idea. And I'll write that down. I'll take a look two or three years before. And I actually learned the same lesson two or three years earlier. It's just that somehow it has escaped my mind. Yet God gave me another opportunity to learn it again. And so hopefully you're meditating on the things of the Day of Atonement. You're not simply uh, suffering, uh, waiting for the next morsel of food that's going to come your way. Uh, hopefully you're actually meditating on the meaning of this day. And in particular, what I'd like to take a look at today is a few things that we can learn from the two goats. Uh, if this sermon has a title, then that title would be Three Lessons from Two Goats. I want to focus on three lessons we can learn from the, the two-goat ceremony that God has given us on the Day of Atonement as we meditate upon them and think about them and sort of chew them up in our minds and see what we can learn from the gifts of God. So three lessons from two goats. The first one, the first lesson that I'd like to take a look at is the fact that there are only two goats. There is no third goat. There is no third goat pictured on the Day of Atonement. There is a goat for the eternal, and then there is the other goat. There is not some odd hybrid in the middle. Well, here's the goat that is 50% for the eternal and 50% for someone else. Or maybe it's a 87% for the eternal and 13% for somebody else. There's no third goat. There's two goats on the Day of Atonement, and that's it. It doesn't make a difference how many wrangling we do. We, don't, we can't go over to Bob's farm and grab a third goat. God just said two. Take a look at Romans chapter 6 in this regard. In Romans, in chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 16. We read, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death, or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's one or the other with God. There is no in-between. There is no compromise position in some way. Go back to the Garden of Eden and consider Adam and Eve. God didn't say, well, here's this tree that you can, you can eat of. You, this is the tree of life. Good tree. Good tree. Oh, good choice. You can have this tree. Then there's this other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Don't eat of that tree. Absolutely not. Then there's this third tree, this little shrub here in the middle. You can eat it. You're going to feel a little bit guilty, but it's not that big a deal. God didn't give them three choices. He gave them two. There are two choices. There are two goats. Christ said there was a path. There were two paths, right? He said there is a narrow path and there's a broad path. He didn't say there was some other path that we could walk that somehow we were allowed to put one foot over here in the narrow path and one foot over here in the broad path and and just sort of straddle the two. There are two paths. God is not a God of compromise when it comes to his way. He wants you fully and completely committed. He doesn't want you to be some kind of odd DNA expert trying to blend the two goats together into some third way because there is no third way. There is no third goat. Let's take a look at Exodus chapter 10. In Exodus, in chapter 10, there is a phrase that jumped out at me the first time I noticed it. And thought, I really like the way that was said. And in this one verse, I found sort of a uh, something I've really hung my hat on. It's something I've really come to uh, pretty often. In Exodus chapter 10, we have the ongoing debate, if you will, between Moses and Pharaoh. Uh, Moses says, we're going to go out and worship God. And Pharaoh says, no, you're not. And things start to get kind of rough. And he says, well, I'll tell you what, if you'll do this or if you'll do that compromise in some way and then I'll be happy to let you go. That, that would be a good deal, Moses. Uh, in Exodus chapter 10 and verse 24, Exodus 10, and we'll start in verse 24, we read, Pharaoh called to Moses and said, go serve the eternal. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. But Moses said, you must give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the eternal, our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take some of them to serve the eternal, our God. And even we do not know what we must serve the eternal, uh, what we with what we must serve the eternal until we arrive there. And then the eternal hardens Pharaoh's heart. And again. They don't get to go. Not one hoof, Moses said. I, that's become a motto for me. I'd, I'd like to say I lived it better uh, than I... I'd like to live it better than I do. I strive for that, that not one hoof. Perhaps if I had a coat of arms, that's the phrase I could put at the bottom, not one hoof. Uh, you get the impression that Moses was saying, Pharaoh, if one of our people so happens to clip their fingernails... The moment before we leave, we're going to scoop those fingernails up and we are leaving because there is not a single thing we're going to leave behind in this land. There will be a complete and absolute distinction, not a single hoof. How many of us, if we're honest with each other, and if we're not going to be honest with ourselves, there's no point in living the Christian life. How many of us, if, if, if we're honest with ourselves, try to come up with compromises with Pharaoh? Pharaoh says, just... Just give me a sheep. And we go, oh, okay, one sheep. Uh, you know, okay, just a couple of hooves. I know you said not one hoof, but uh, just, just give me a couple. And you think, wow, well, just a couple of hooves. Sure, you know, I can go ahead and do that. How many of us make compromises, whether it's, a, whether it's on the Sabbath, 
uh, whether it's our relationship with other people. You know, how many of us, if we're married, and I, and I am married, and uh, somehow we're in a, a disagreement with my wife, not that I'm ever uh, in a disagreement with my wife, uh, but just pretend with me uh, that that could possibly happen. And let's say I'm just frustrated for some reason, and in my mind I think of just a real zinger, just something that's just going to, I could just say it quickly, it'd be brief, it would, it would sting a little bit, it would make my point, and I would, I'd walk away feeling like uh, I, I, I won the argument, whatever the case may be. It's just one, just one quick comment. We all, we all have lapses, right? We all have moments of weakness. Can't I just be granted this one self-satisfying moment? Can't I just lob one goat over to Pharaoh? Just one goat. I mean, I've got a whole flock. Not one hoof. There is no compromise with Satan the devil. There were two goats on the Day of Atonement. The goat for the eternal and then the other goat. Try as hard as you might. You're not going to come up with another goat. There is no third way. In the things that we say, uh, the way we conduct ourselves, we should always be mindful of the fact that we are people of God and we must walk that way. We shouldn't be looking for alternatives to obeying Him. That has to be our passion. Whatever His way is, that's what we want, not the compromise. Because in truth, there is no third goat. And if we're not on the side with the eternal, then what side are we on? the other side. So that's the first lesson that I want to discuss here on the Day of Atonement is that there is no third goat. A second lesson I'd like to take a look at, please turn to 1 John in chapter 2. 1 John in chapter 2. And what I want to stress is that other goat, the goat that is not for the eternal, the other goat is taken away. It's no longer present. In 1 John chapter 2, and let's start in verse 15. In 1 John 2 and verse 15, we read the Apostle John telling us, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The world is going to pass away. This society, everything that we see around us that has nothing to do with God, that is truly not a part of God's way, of the way that God would do things, the way that God would see things, anything like that is going to be utterly and absolutely removed. And in the same book here in 1 John, look a little later in chapter 3. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. We read, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus Christ is going to absolutely, completely, unalterably, he's going to destroy completely the works 
of the devil. There will be nothing left that has Satan's scent on it, Satan's smell on it, Satan's way about it. It will be completely and absolutely destroyed. It says for this purpose, this is why he's come. When all is said and done, all that will be left are those things that reflect the character, the nature and the quality of God. Everything else completely and absolutely taken away. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. In the book of Isaiah chapter 11, it's a most likely a very familiar verse to all of us, but there's an aspect about it that I would like to stress. In Isaiah chapter 11 and in verse 9. Isaiah 11 and verse 9. We read, they shall not destroy, uh, and uh, sorry, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the eternal as the waters cover the sea. This world is going to be saturated with the knowledge of God, completely and utterly saturated with his way with his way of looking at things, with his way of life and his walk. Every nook, every cranny, every pore of this world is going to be filled with the knowledge of God. I mean, how much do the waters cover the sea? They cover every bit of the sea. The waters are the sea. By definition, the waters completely and absolutely cover the sea. That's the way it's going to be. It is going to be in such that there is no room for anything else. The other goat is going to be taken away. Uh, let's take a look at, uh, still in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 2. In Isaiah chapter 2, we read a passage that, try to imagine this being said, were Satan not taken away. Try to imagine the peoples of this world uh, from different cultures, different backgrounds, different religions, different animosities against each other, different hatreds, uh, different histories, being together and saying things of this nature. In Isaiah chapter 2, and let's start reading in verse 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the eternal's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the eternal, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the eternal from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. Can you imagine a reality like this? Can you imagine being in Palestine? Can you imagine, can you imagine some of the Arabs in this world whose animosity against Israel is powerful I don't know if some of you have seen this clip, but surely some of you have. I, I remember seeing a clip of 
the equivalent of a Sesame Street show uh, in uh, amongst the Palestinians. It was a cute kids show, at least on the surface. You had funny puppets, uh, hairy monsters. It was really, it was basically a, a Sesame Street uh, for Palestinian children. But uh, you couldn't understand what they were saying. At least I couldn't. Some of you actually probably do speak that language. I don't. Uh, but they did have a translation uh, for it into English. And you would see uh, little girls, innocent little girls standing up, just pumping her fist into the air, saying, I want to die in the streets of Jerusalem. I want to be a suicide bomber. I want my blood to run down the streets uh, of Jerusalem. We're talking about children, maybe five or six. Can you imagine a people with such hatred about things that have to do with the Jews or things that, that have to do with, with, with that people actually making comments like this and wanting to go to the mountain of the eternal. Or for that matter, can you imagine Americans like, like me stuck in this stubborn way of life? Americans virtually worship individuality and the, and the ability and the right to choose what we want to do. To deter, I determine what's right and wrong. I determine me, me, me. It's, it's, it's a spirit in America that it's ingrained. It's like a part of our cultural DNA. Can you imagine the American people as a whole just realizing that this is wrong? This is wrong. Look what God has given us. Of course, we'll go through that crushing time of the tribulation. That's going to make a difference. But can you imagine those people in the future realizing, you know, it's not about me. I don't want to know what I think is right. I don't want to constantly be deciding uh, the right thing or the wrong thing, because honestly, I mess it up all the time. I don't get it right. I don't have the standard. I want to go where that standard is, even if it means putting away the most sacred ideas I have ever held. I want to know the truth. I want to be there where God is and learn from him and put myself aside. Can you fathom a thought like that, a culture like that, people's thinking like that, if Satan and the devil were still present on the earth broadcasting through the uh, satanic broadcast network, if SBN was still broadcasting on the airwaves, can you imagine we'd have this transformation of life and culture in the millennium? Absolutely not. That world is being taken away and taken away for the good of everyone. Let's look at one more verse in this regard before we move on. In the book of Matthew, if you would please turn to Matthew chapter 15. In Matthew chapter 15, there's a statement that, honestly, when I reflect on it, uh, it, it gives me the chills a little bit. It gives me, makes me a little bit uh, nervous. Make me want to make sure that I'm where I'm supposed to be. In Matthew chapter 15, uh, we have Jesus Christ really just uh, powerfully criticizing uh, the attitude of the Pharisees and the lawyers and those the, the self-righteous of his day. And uh, we come to a statement that really I just want to... Uh, uh, point out, beginning in verse 12. In Matthew 15, beginning in verse 12, we read, Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Yeah, they were offended. I mean, Jesus Christ was in their face at that time. There's a time not to do that. There's a time to do that. And Jesus Christ uh, confronted them with the truth. So, yeah, uh, they were offended. The apostles were kind of bothered by that. Oh, wow, he's offended them. Uh, he did know that he offended them. Let's take a look at what he says in verse 13. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. 
we have an obligation to look into our lives and see what's growing in my life that is a plant my father has planted, that I'm watering and nurturing, that he wants present in the garden of my soul. But what plants are in there that he did not plant? What plants am I secretly nourishing, uh, fertilizing, pruning? It is not a plant planted by my Father. There's only two planters. Every plant that my Father has not planted will be uprooted. The world that we see around it, uh, around us, uh, the basis of our educational system, our financial systems, everything that is not firmly grounded in the Word of God, that does not represent a plant planted uh, by God the Father, is going to be uprooted. That world is going to be taken away. And that is one lesson uh, that we can learn from the goats on the Feast of Atonement. Let's take a look at one more lesson, this third lesson I'd like to take a look at. Now, let's go back to Leviticus chapter 16. In Leviticus chapter 16, and I'm going to read this passage out of a, a, a Bible that most of you probably don't have. And it's a Bible that I would not recommend anybody buy. Uh, it's what I call the WIV. It is the woefully inaccurate version. Uh, I want to read this passage from the woefully inaccurate version. In fact, if you've got a decent translation of the Bible, you might have a New King James or a King James. Please don't read. Otherwise, you'll get confused. You'll say, well, that's not what it says in my Bible. And you'll be right. This is out of the woefully inaccurate version. Uh, I'm going to read from my, my very special Bible. Uh, Leviticus chapter 16. And I'm going to start in verse 7. Leviticus 16, verse 7, again, out of the woefully inaccurate version, WIV. We read about Aaron. It says, He shall take the two goats and pre present them before the Eternal at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron shall carefully examine the two goats, looking at every hoof, looking behind every ear, uh, looking into the nostrils, checking out the tail, checking out the pupils and the eyes. And Aaron shall carefully determine which goat is the Eternal's and which goat is the other. Your Bible does not say that. Aaron did not pick between the two goats. What did they do? They cast lots. They cast lots for the goat so that God could show them which goat was which. God had to choose the goat. And that's the third lesson I'd like to present today. God has to choose the goat. Yes, mankind has a fantastic mind. We can reason, we can justify, we can learn. But when it comes to the truth of God, when it really comes to those things that matter in this world, when it comes to matters of reality, matters of what God's way is, what the truth is, the things we should be doing, what sin is, the way of life that we should walk, God has to show us the goat. God has to choose the goat. Our reasoning will fall short every single time. Turn to 2 Corinthians, if you will. We'll take a look at 2 Corinthians. And chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And... We'll start in verse 12 of 2 Corinthians in chapter 11. But what I do, 
I will also continue to do, Paul says, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. No wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Satan can deceive. Satan can deceive. And it's wrong for us to think that somehow we're immune to that if we get lax, if we're not paying attention, if we're not in tune with the mind of God, if we're not asking God to to fill us with the mind of Christ. Satan is subtle, incredibly subtle. Actually, uh, let's make that point. It's it's worthwhile just to turn to the verse in Genesis in chapter 3. In Genesis, in chapter 3, we're introduced to Satan for the first time in in the Holy Text, in the text of the Bible. And in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 1, We read, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the eternal God had made. And then it begins in terms of the the deceit that he begins to work on Eve. More cunning. I think it's the King James translation that actually says more subtle. Satan is subtle. He is powerful in that sense. Satan doesn't come right out and say, hey, I'm a false apostle here. I'm inspiring this guy and he's got a lot of wacky ideas. And uh, I really want you to believe that because I would love to pull you away uh, from the truth of God. How great it would be if he did that. Or if he did that, we could say, hey, Satan, I'm not interested in that. But he doesn't do that. And believe me, there are a lot of wacky ideas out there uh, with the Internet. Anybody can publish. Anybody can publish. Uh, someone can have just the strangest off-the-wall idea, and there's a website for that. Uh, they like, start their own church. I mean, there. How many churches of God are there out there where people are just proclaiming, well, this difference and that difference and that difference? Thank you, internet. Uh, the internet to me is just one of the best pictures uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Is such a mix. It's such a mix. And literally anybody can publish. And, you know, the really wacky ideas out there, in a sense, they don't bother me as much because the really odd tends to stand out as the really odd. It's the really subtle that bothers me. It's the teachings out there that sound right. It's like, well, that really does have some sense to it. You know, know, I haven't thought about that before, but there's something about that it really might be something to that. I don't mind all the really strange ideas because they seem strange to me. What concerns me is the fact that Satan is subtle and all he wants is just a little room. He's got his crowbar. All he needs is a crack to start working on prying me away from the God who loves me and the God who shows me the truth. It is my responsibility to go to God consistently on a daily basis and ask him, God, show me the difference between the two goats. Help me to discern. I need your mind. My mind by itself, in and of itself, is not sufficient. I don't want my mind. Father, I want your mind. I want the ability to discern. And I need your help doing that. Show me 
which is the goat for you and which is the other? Turn to Proverbs chapter 14. Again, very likely a very familiar verse for most of us, but a vital verse to understand. Important enough that God inspired it twice in two different locations. And if you want, in fact, turn to Proverbs 16:25. It'll be the same verse if for some reason you don't like the numbers 14 or 12. And there's an option for you. But I'm going to turn to Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. And we'll see this statement. Proverbs 14 and verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It is vital that we not fall into the trap of thinking that somehow this verse does not apply to me. That somehow through my superior mind, uh, through my uh, very uh, intelligent sense of what's right and wrong, uh, the fact that I've studied so often, I just have it all together. I don't need uh, God's advice in terms of determining right and wrong because I just plain have it. That is a dangerous place to be in. What does the Apostle Paul tell us? He says, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. The moment that we think that we've got our act together, we've got it, this, this way seems right, is the very moment when that warning from Paul should kick in. And we should say, I don't want to be too self-confident. I want to know what God's mind is on this matter. I want to know what he says on this matter. Because there is a way that seems right to a man. There is a way that is going to seem right to me. There's a way that's going to seem right to you. But the end of that way is death. Uh, Turn to the book of Judges. Uh, The last verse in the book of Judges, which should be Judges 21 and 25. Judges 21 and 25. Uh, We read a statement that God uses to condemn the state of Israel at that time. In Judges 21 and 25, he says what? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's important to notice what's being said here. It doesn't say everyone was doing things even if they thought they were wrong. People were making choices that they knew were wrong, but they did them anyway. It says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's something more to being right than simply thinking that you're right. And we are not immune from that. Turn to the book of Jeremiah, if you will. And the book of Jeremiah in chapter 17 now, those in my congregation are going to say, oh, he's, he's reading Jeremiah 17 again. He does that all the time. I do all the time because as far as I'm concerned, it is a powerful warning to humanity about the nature of how we are and how we think. And we have to understand, we have to come to terms with that and believe it because if we don't believe it, it just opens us up all the more for self-deception. In Jeremiah chapter 17, we read in verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? The heart is deceitful above all things 
That is a huge statement. Do you believe that statement? Yeah, we, one thing we know in the church of God that is a fabulous truth is that conversion is a process. That you're not put down in that water and have your sins forgiven and hands laid on you and God's spirit placed within you and then suddenly that's it. You've just got your act together. You walk the straight and narrow. You never stray to the right, never stray to the left. We know that conversion is a process. We know that God says he's going to replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. But we also know that he is doing this over the course of time. And that during this time, we're trying to mortify uh, the old man uh, with his deeds that really bring death into our lives. We are exposed to the deception of that heart. We have to recognize that fact. I, who's the best liar you know? Please don't say it out loud. The people in your congregation probably wouldn't appreciate that in case he happens to be there. Uh, but say the greatest liar you know, most likely a politician. I, I hate to say that. But most likely someone that you've thought in the past, wow. Uh, this guy can lie like nobody's business. Now, we've had certain presidents that might fall into that category. This guy can lie and lie and lie. He is, he's an expert. He's a perfect politician. That guy knows how to twist and distort the truth like an expert. Well, you may think that about that fellow, but there is a greater liar in all the world beating in your chest right now because the heart is deceitful above all things. If there is something you want to believe, if there is some twist of doctrine, some subtle shift in a certain direction, if there is a, something you really want, and even though it seems like God's law says that that's not really for you, yet maybe it is, maybe there's some justification that'll work. It doesn't make a difference. Whatever you want, your heart is going to find reasons to justify getting that for you. Your heart is going to find reasons to believe that twist of doctrine for you. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, if the passage stopped there, we'd be stuck. We'd be stuck with two goats and we'd have absolutely no idea which goat really is the goat for the eternal or which one is the goat for the other. And can I really trust my heart in what it's saying in terms of this one or that one? But the passage doesn't stop there. It goes on to verse 10. It says, who can know it? Verse 10, I, the eternal, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. We don't have to rely on our own reasoning. If we do, we're fools because our own reasoning just doesn't cut the mustard when it comes to knowing God's way and knowing the truth. But if we've got God's spirit in us, if we're going to him daily on our knees asking, God, please show me the way. I don't want to stray from the path. I don't want the other goat. I want the goat for you. I need you in me, living in me, showing me the way that I should go for my sake, for the sake of my children, for the sake of my children's children, looking down the generations. I want to be a man of God. And to do that, Holy Father, I need your help. One of the lessons of the Day of Atonement is that only God can distinguish between the two goats. Well, those are three lessons I wanted to discuss today. Uh, the first was that there is no third goat. There is no compromise. We've got the goat for the eternal on the Day of Atonement, and then we've got the other goat. There is no third goat. There's no putting those together. There is no middle way between God's way and Satan the devil's. And God wants us to choose. 
And as we leave the one, he wants us to leave not a hoof uh, behind while making that choice. And the second lesson was that, uh, oh, the world associated with that other goat is passing away. If we are involved in that world, then when it comes time for God to throw that into the trash bin of history, is going to take us along with it. Our, our roots so sunk into that way of life, that satanic way of life, the, the culture that Satan the devil has crafted, that when it comes time to cast it aside, to take the goat into the wilderness, that it's going to end up taking us along too. Hopefully not. Hopefully we're coming out of her as we're instructed to do and we're leaving that way behind because that world absolutely is passing away and the foulness and filth of it is no longer going to be a part of the world in tomorrow's world. And then there's the third lesson. God has to show us the goat. It's not for us to decide. It's not for us to figure out. We have to take advantage of the things that God gives us. He gives us his word and he gives us his ministry, which is meant to be there. Read in Ephesians to prevent us from being tossed about to and fro by every wind of doctrine. God puts everything in place that we need to be able to discern the truth. If we're willing to take advantage of those things not simply look to our own heart, not simply look to our own ways to find that path, but rather to ask God to distinguish between the goats. Well, brethren, I hope that you have had a fantastic day of atonement. I know you're hungry. I can almost hear your stomachs growling through the camera. Uh, I hope you have a fantastic meal when you finally break your fast. I hope uh, that my kids finally get what they're looking for here at the end of the day of atonement. And truly, I hope you recognize that even though it is a fast day, it really is also a feast. It's an opportunity, unlike any other holy day we have, to feast not on food and not on drink, but to feed on Christ, as Mr. Meredith is so often recommending that we do. So have a fantastic rest of the Day of Atonement and have a fantastic Feast of Tabernacles.